Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam McNeil, and I'm your host. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Dr. Vanessa M. Holden, Associate Professor of History and African American and Africana Studies, and the Director of the Central Kentucky Slavery Initiative. Dr. Holden is on to discuss her much-heralded first monograph, Surviving Southampton, African American Women, and Resistance in Nat Turner's Community, published in 2021 by our friends at the University of Illinois Press. In our conversation, Dr. Holden and I discussed the important but unheralded roles of Black women and children in the rebellion, why we should shift how we quantify slave rebellion success, what songs would go on a surviving Southampton playlist, and much, much more. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, Dr. Holden. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing all right. Hanging in there at the start of the semester. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. The beginning of uh, of, of a semester that hopefully will, you know, be a little bit different than uh, than that last one that we just had. Um, so, uh, so, so thank you for taking the time to chat with me today about your brand new book, Hot Off the Flipping Presses. Surviving Southampton, African-American Women and Resistance in Nat Turner's Community. Before we dive deep into Surviving Southampton, please tell the audience how you came to this project on African-American women in Nat Turner's community. Um, So I went to college in Southwest Virginia uh, at Randolph-Macon Women's College in Lynchburg, Virginia. And while I was there, I took my first ever women's history course. and in the course, uh, there was some representation of, of Black women, um, but not a whole lot. And uh, I wondered if it was possible uh, to tell the histories of particularly enslaved Black women. Um, later on in my uh, undergraduate experience, I read the Confessions of Nat Turner, the primary source document that was published by a, a local lawyer from Southampton County at the time. Um, and part of Turner's uh, narration of his time after the rebellion is that he hid out for really uh, two months uh, after the rebellion ended and lived very close to the place where he was enslaved uh, and lived in the county undetected uh, for really a, a pretty remarkable amount of time and really the project for me began with a question, um, you know, who fed Nat Turner? I mean, he wasn't feeding himself. He couldn't risk stealing food for himself. Uh, how did he stay alive for two months in a, a dugout cave in the swamps of Southampton County? And that question led to an undergraduate project about slave rebellion and masculinity. And then it led me to Rutgers University where I was able to do more in-depth coursework and more in-depth work on Black women and slavery and a dissertation that 
focused pretty heavily on the community that surrounded the Southampton Rebellion to the book. So it's been a a long journey. Uh, It's taken a, a long time to get here, but really the, the project began with a question uh, and a question that nobody really thought to ask with an answer that I could imagine uh, what black, black women and a black community is, is what kept Nat Turner alive um, that I thought deserved exploration. And you had brought up a particular uh, tie between us um, Rutgers University in New Brunswick. And so, um, you know, you, you highlight um, in particular uh, Dr. Dr. Deborah Gray-White's influence on you and your work. Um, can you tell us more about your relationship with Dr. White and any important lessons she provided you over the course of your career, um, especially, especially since uh, she is also one of the, I believe, editors of this series? Yeah, she's one of the editors of the series at the University of Illinois uh, Press. Um, and she was one of my advisors in grad school. My other advisor was Suzanne Lipsock. Uh, and both of them gave me really different different things. Uh, Suzanne taught me a lot about writing, taught me a lot about craft and historical writing. Uh, and Deborah really, you know, I, I called her... Uh, sort of lovingly coach because she had a very, um, uh, a style of, of mentoring that was about empowering her students to go do the things that they needed to do. Uh, and she, she really taught me and instilled in me the, the sort of keep going, uh, you know, personal motto, uh, that I had to live by in graduate school that, um, there's a lot about the way that historians do our work. There's a lot about the way that we get jobs or don't get jobs. There's a lot about the way the profession works, uh, that just involve, uh, staying ready and continuing to move forward. Um, and, you know, she was always, she always provided me with that nudge and sometimes push, uh, to keep it moving, uh, to keep it going word by word, uh, if I had to. Um, and I, I reflect on that a lot now, especially as I, I have my own students and I work with my own mentees that, that, you know, my, my style of mentoring isn't particularly, uh, warm and nurturing, but it, it is definitely more of a, uh, sort of a coaching style. And I, I really do think I, I got that from her. Yeah, I uh, I definitely have uh, felt that coaching uh, in in my own life in in a particular way, especially my first semester um, at Rutgers. And uh, Dr. White don't play. I I definitely learned that. Uh, you, you better, as she say says, bring the goods. Um, and, uh, and and yeah, and so so I definitely uh, can can see how you know she's definitely shaped you um, as well. And and like I said, especially with, with also uh, being able to now publish uh, through the, the series that she has at um, University of Illinois Press. And so a question about the book here. Um, one of the most striking, pun intended, moments I encountered reading Surviving Southampton was actually when I read your prologue. 
uh, when you state that Surviving Southampton um, endeavors to explain, quote, the space between Crawford's grandmother's hand and Nat Turner's face, end quote. Dr. Holden, that was an interesting moment when I was reading that. I was literally, I think it's probably, I think laying in my bed reading and I was like, what? First of all, great writing. Oh my gosh, that's one. And two, uh, to, to the question, please describe the moment you came across this WPA narrative because, wow, wow. Uh, so the WPA narratives for Virginia, many of them are are published and they're in a published collection called Weevils in the Wheat, which is uh, an expression that enslaved people use to warn other people that patrollers were around or were going to be out. Um, and it's a great compilation. Uh, and as part of my research, what I did was I really combed through uh, those those WPA narratives taken down in the 1930s, one of the questions on their official questionnaire that, that these different interviewers would ask formerly enslaved people who were called ex-slaves at the time uh, was about rebellion and resistance. Um, and of course, in Virginia, the name Nat Turner came up over and over again, whether people had many details or not. Uh, so Alan Crawford says in his in his own interview that that he's from Southampton County. He grew up in the neighborhood that the Southampton Rebellion uh, mostly took place in. And he knew uh, people who had survived the rebellion, white and black, uh, growing up. And these narratives, you know, they're taken down by people who are very old in the 1930s and, and overwhelmingly had been, I mean, they were children during the time that they were enslaved. So a lot of what they talk about are the, the memories that uh, older, older kin, uh, so siblings, parents, grandparents pass to them about things that happen. And then, then they often talk about things during slavery, really in, in some ways from a from a child's point of view, because that's the age they were when they were enslaved. So Alan Crawford, you know, when he's asked about resistance and rebellion in Virginia, he, he, he recounts the rebellion in a, in a somewhat fragmented way, but mostly he, he focuses on women. Uh, He talks about enslaved women at a nearby plantation. He talks about, uh, the fact that enslaved men went from house to house. And then he lands on this story about his grandmother who was enslaved um, at the Edwards uh, farm, uh, a place where once captured Nat Turner was sort of brought through on his way to Jerusalem where he'd be jailed and then tried uh, at the end of October of 1831. Um and her encounter with Nat Turner really sums up the many layers that I, I'm trying to get at with the title of the book, that survivor is a word we use for people who've endured something significant, um, surviving a natural disaster or surviving a fire. Uh, but it's also a word we use for the bereaved. Um, and uh, you know, often in obituaries, the, the turn of phrase is, you know, that the, the deceased is survived by 
you know, and then there's a list of, of family members and uh, kin after that. Um, and so that the, the story that was most, you know, it most imprinted on his mind, the story that he most likely grew up hearing over and over again was not a story of triumphant rebellion and, and freedom fighting in, in the sense that we're most used to hearing about slave rebellions. It's actually about a moment of intense grief where his grandmother confronts Nat Turner and hits him so hard that he starts bleeding. It's possible that his uncle Henry, the, the son that, that his grandmother is talking about when she hits Nat Turner and said, how could you, how could you take my son away from me? Um, it's possible that he's one of the most, uh, one of the, one of the early co-conspirators who's, who's in on it from a fairly early phase in the rebellion planning. It's possible that that, that it's that Henry, um, though I can't be completely sure. Um, but that the story was passed to him was the story of grief and loss um, is really significant that uh, here's this woman who now has to, has to survive her son, right. And has to live in the spaces where her son lived and has to deal with the fallout uh, because most of the key male rebellion players are executed or sold away. Um, and it's really women like Alan Crawford's grandmother who are left to pick up the pieces. Uh, so it's not really surprising to me that, that later on, Alan Crawford, even as a very aged, aged man, is able to recount from memory the complete slave patrol schedule for the county that he needed to know in his youth to stay safe. Um, I think that there's a real touching lesson there about generational grief, but also generational survival that telling Alan Crawford that story as, as a kid and as a young man was a warning um, and a warning about the ways to resist and stay alive. Um, so the space between her hand and Nat Turner's face, you know, it, it's, it's not a very large space, uh, but it's one where, where Crawford's uncle Henry is missing. And that's, that's a part of the story that gets glossed over to get to, well, what are the bigger impacts of this rebellion? What does it mean religiously or politically? How important is it? It's, it's just missed. Um, yeah. And so starting with it, I mean, that is why I wanted to start there. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the, um, the, the, beginning anecdotes, you know, they just stare to right there, like, you know, gotta gotta use it. Um and and one of the aspects I enjoyed most about, you know, your rendering of of the rebellion really um is the analytic of survival and and what does that mean? And also thinking about how communities um and often um uh in this case it's like women and, and free women as well as folks who ultimately help folks survive, um, either even, as you show, in cases where people are, um, you know, instead of being executed, they are then, instead of being executed, they are, you know, uh, sent away, effectively, or traded away. Um, and so it, it also has me to also think about the different analytics within um, slave rebellions and, and revolts and, and the different questions that, you know, are still uh, yet to be asked. 
But you going back to even your writing and also melding the writing piece that you spoke about at Rutgers and also the, the subject matter that we just talked about. Surviving Southampton, as we said, is a story about community, ultimately. And so bringing the book into production was also, it seems, a community effort as well. So can you describe any writing and or research communities that helped uh, foster the text uh, along the way as well? So I think, you know, this this question has, you know, a layer of, of layers and layers of answers that I had friends in grad school who uh, do not at all study what I study, uh, who were supportive. Um, I had really good, solid mentoring um, from from Dr. White, but also from a number of other faculty in the department, some of whom were not at all Americanist, uh, did not look at slavery in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then sort of peer mentors as I as I left graduate school and moved into the profession, um, I have a number of folks who are at roughly the same career stage I am that, that we check in, um, we talk about our work, but we also talk about life, uh, keep each other accountable, work on projects together. Um, and so, you know, I mostly will say that as historians, we're not really trained to work in collaboration. That's not a, not a necessarily a component of the discipline We're we're trained to often for long periods of time <laughs> in a fairly isolated way, go into archives, some that are not particularly welcoming uh, to who we are um, and do our work, analyze things and then spit out uh, writing somehow on the other end. Um, and I will say that some of the sort of community practices that have really sustained me and made it possible for me to do the work that I do are uh, finding ways to work in collaboration. Um, the really founding the Queer and Slavery Working Group with Jessica Marie Johnson, who's at Johns Hopkins, um, her friendship and peer mentoring has sustained me. Um, uh, collaborating with, working with uh, Tamika Nunley, who's at Cornell now, um, has kept me going. Um, so finding ways to work in collaboration, work on projects with colleagues, with folks who are also doing things in the field has helped me do the individual work that I, that I need to do. Um, it is life-sustaining um, because the 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 training we get is to sort of purposefully isolate ourselves. Um, working with uh, Dr. Johnson um, and Ana Lucia Arujo and Alex Hill on the queering slavery, but uh, uh, not the queering slavery, sorry, the um, slavery archive book club um, during this pandemic. I mean, Jessica and Ana founded it and then invited Alex and I along for the ride. And, and it's kept, uh, it's kept me in touch with a broader community of slavery scholars that it's really vital um, in this time of isolation. So uh, it's not possible for all of our work to be collaborative, but to find points of collaboration and find community, even if you're not in close physical proximity, um, has been 
has been one of the ways that I, you know, put one foot in front of the other, one word after another, uh, and keep it, keep it moving. And community helps so much, especially when challenges arise um, along the way, which we know that we all have them. And so in terms of the, the text and, and, you know, in all matters of the production, um, what were the, well, any really, what were uh, any major challenges you faced during the research um, and our writing process while completing uh, Surviving Southampton as well? Uh, working on this project has taken uh, a number of years of my life. And in all that time, life also happened. Um, and that's the thing, you know, we're trained to be isolated, but the truth is we're still connected uh, to family and community and kin and um, all the normal and sometimes extraordinary life stuff is happening while we're trying to do this work. Um, so creating ways to create boundaries around my work because our work really is expand to fit, uh, to give my brain the space to, to really be able to focus when I, when I'm focused and let it go when I'm not, <laughs> not trying to focus. Um, that took a long time to learn. Grad school certainly didn't encourage it. Uh, and starting in the profession does not encourage it. Uh, it's something that has, you know, has taken me a while to, to cultivate uh, work-life boundaries, uh, but it's been worth the process. I'll also say this, uh, that, that doing the work of uncovering the lives of enslaved people requires, particularly for Black scholars, uh, um, it, it requires us to enter into spaces that may literally have been built by Black people. Um, so, so in a literal sense, the bricks were laid on top of each other by Black people at some point. Um, but our, we're not built with our, with us in mind. Um, for us, uh, and actually often our spaces that we were barred from until fairly recent history. Um, so I have encountered... Uh, sort of uh, weird discriminatory moments in archives. I've encountered um, sort of disbelief that my project was even possible. Mm. Um, so in both subtle and overt ways, um, plenty of people told me that, that this book could not, just could not exist, could not happen. Uh, it's helpful to have an, an advisor, right? Who wrote a synthetic work about uh, enslaved women before. <laughs> before uh -huh. any of the monographs were written. Um, so leaning into, leaning away from probability and into possibility uh, was another thing that, that I was trained to do. And um, you kind of have to do if you're going to look at enslaved black women. Um, and then, you know, I will also say that, that, that there's some uh, challenges presented and really the affect of these sources. Um Early on in my research, I spent time at the Library of Virginia and I was looking through boxes and boxes and special collections that were just labeled, you know, uh, free Negro and slave records. Um, and there, there was a little description of what was inside of them, but I wasn't expecting to find an entire box of black children's indenture papers. Um, and I photographed all of them uh, and took down their metadata um, but it was this 
you know, cache of sources that I just did not have the emotional capacity to deal with at the dissertation stage. I wrote about children later and children are part of the book project. Um, but there have been moments in the, in the archive, you know, when I got to the indenture papers for a six month old, um, where I just, I had to take my photos and set it down and come back to it. Um, and, and I don't, I don't think we talk very much about these difficulties, uh, in working on enslaved people and, and for good reason. Um, it's not always particularly safe to, uh, and also, you know, none of what we're doing in the archive is more difficult than uh, what the people who lived through it had to face. Right. Uh, so there's a certain amount of wanting to honor these people's lives that, that we're studying. Um, but I do think that that's, that's also an important piece of drawing those work-life boundaries. It, it is overwhelming. The story of the Southampton Rebellion is, is awful. Um, it's not triumphant and shiny and sparkly. It's not happy. Uh, it involves the death of a lot of people. Um, and it involves, uh, truly heartbreaking moments. I mean, that's another reason why I start with Alan Crawford's grandmother, because I want to make super clear from the beginning that this is not a story about superheroes. This is a story about human beings who have to do extraordinary things to survive a fairly extraordinary event. And that brings us to really my next question in terms of, you know, you discuss a lot about the challenges and and, and also um, really the effective ways that we, as scholars anyway, um, deal with having to literally sit with dismemberment and and blood and, and all that as well, but I also think that you know you wrote the book, and I think it's important that people hear um, you, your actual voice, reading from from the book. And so, um, is there a particular um, passage that you want to read that, um, in, in a way, I guess, embodies some of the central themes and messages that you're trying to to send to your reader um, about the rebellion? Sure. Um, so I've read from this passage before, um, and uh, it's really the, it's the beginning of my second chapter, uh, chapter two, Enslaved Women and Strategies of Evasion and Resistance. Um, and it kind of gets at the intimacy of this particular rebellion, um, just how closely people live together. I think a lot of times when people think about slavery, they have an, an image of um, antebellum slavery in, in the deep south at a sprawling plantation where there's a large stately home and then a neat row of individual cabins. Um, there's this big separation in where enslaved people and enslavers live. Um, but on the farms in the neighborhood that I look at, um, maybe a handful of people were wealthy enough to have a setup like that. Um, actually, in a number of these, a number of cases, enslaved people lived in the same structures as their enslavers, um, and their work days were spent alongside their enslavers because these people did not enslave in the numbers they would need to to not be able to do work themselves on their on their own farms. Um, and 
I use, uh, I use place as a source. Um, so I look at sort of the broader physical geography of the county, but I also look at really intimate geographies like the geography of an individual farmyard um, and how that helps me place uh, people throughout their day. Um, so this, this comes from the beginning of chapter two, um, and it's titled Charlotte and Esther. The heat of a Southside August was kind to cotton and nothing else. The only other living things that looked forward to the heat were preachers. It was sitting in season for the white folk who could travel to revivals. They would wait on the Lord and wait for the king, King Cotton, to first open make his presence known, and demand more tribute and sweat and scars. The white fluffy wealth was all over the county. Some big men had vast fields, while many others had patches here and there. In the heat and the foggy haze of swampy humidity, the cotton no longer needed chopping. It just needed sun and water and time. Then the hardest season would come in a wave of bursting bowls. The cotton would open up, and the hands would sweep it up, and the gins would clean it up, and the hands would mow it out and cart it. But in August, the cotton would buy time and mature, and the hands would spend less time in the fields and more time occupied elsewhere. For women like Charlotte, there was never an end to work, no matter what season it was. The cotton was just one thing growing. In the summer of 1831, for example, her new enslaver, Lavinia Francis, was close to welcoming her first child. Lavinia was only 18 at the time. Her young husband, Nathaniel Francis, brought his wife to his childhood home place from Northampton County, North Carolina, just over the border from Southampton County, Virginia. Lavinia took over as manager of the farm's domestic labor and laborers from Nathaniel's mother, who still lived on the place. With the new woman of the house came another new woman, Esther. An enslaved woman came along from North Carolina as a wedding gift, like a trunk or trousseau. The heat could not have been easy on Lavinia and her condition. She'd grown up in the heat of the region just across the border, but that summer she was sweating for two. The Francis family perhaps later recalled rebels arriving on their place in the morning of August 22nd, 1831, on the heels of a young boy they knew from the farm of neighboring kin. But the truth was that rebels had, had arrived much earlier than that. Francis's enslaved laborers, Sam and Will, were both original co-conspirators with Nat Turner, who, along with a small group of others, had plotted at least since the spring to foment rebellion in the neighborhood. Will had been in the Francis holdings since the time of Nathaniel's father, Samuel Francis. The enslaved man, Sam, had arrived on the farm in the early 1820s. As one historian of the rebellion points out, the holdings of Nathaniel and his sister together would produce four of the seven original insurgents including the leader, his chief lieutenant, and the executioner. Ultimately, six men and boys from Nathaniel Francis's place, none of whom were recent arrivals to his holdings, traveled the county with the rebels in August of 1831. The happenings around, the out, around and outside the Francis home place have received ample attention from historians. When rebels arrived on the farm, they murdered the Francis's overseer and two white boys, they searched for Lavinia, Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's mother. When they could not find them, they went on to a neighboring farm. The rebellion at the Francis farm did not end when the men and boys left. Charlotte and Esther, who remained behind, set to work preparing food for the men to return to and began fighting over Lavinia's belongings. They assumed that the rebels had murdered her. Lavinia Francis was not dead, 
She'd passed out from the heat in an attic cubbyhole where a person enslaved by the extended Francis family had hidden her. When she woke up, she made her way to the kitchen behind the house where she could hear Charlotte and Esther fighting. The three women regarded each other and the following moments moved quickly. Charlotte grabbed a handy knife and lunged at Lavinia. Esther stepped between them and held off Charlotte, who just missed dispatching their enslaver. Lavinia grabbed a nearby wheel of cheese and fled to the woods. In the space of a few hours, Lavinia and Francis had escaped death twice, once at the hands of enslaved men and once at the other end of an enslaved woman's kitchen knife. Esther and Charlotte's participation in the Southampton Rebellion was distinctly different from that of their male counterparts, who were elsewhere in the county by the time Lavinia Francis came to. Past histories of the Southampton Rebellion regard Charlotte and Esther's story as anomalous and their actions as spontaneous. However, their motives were not different from the, those of male rebels. The two women acted no more out of personal resentment and frustration than the men for whom they cooked dinner. What happened in the Francis kitchen was as much a part of the Southampton Rebellion as Nat Turner's initial cabin pond meeting and the killing of Nathaniel Francis's kin in his front yard. The future rebels had lived on the place long before August 1831, including the enslaved women who lived on the farm in that category means that some rebels never really left. Enslaved women's gendered labor forced them to navigate each type of space on a small and medium-sized farm. The Francis kitchen was one such space, and Esther and Charlotte's confrontation with Lavinia is one example of two geographies intersecting. Wow. See, when I read that, man, oh my goodness, that was that was amazing. And, and before I give my comments about how amazing it was, I, I would also like to know, um, out of the hundred plus, you know, pages that you could have chosen, why, why in particular did you choose this particular passage? Um, so Charlotte and Esther don't appear in the official court records um, that were generated post rebellion. They appear, um, they actually show up in Ellen Crawford's uh, interview. Um, they appear in a text published around 1900 that involved interviews with people who survived the rebellion, um, actually written by a Johns Hopkins PhD named William Sidney Drury. Um, and so they appear, uh, they, they appear and their story appears in local oral history um, and, and much older written histories of the rebellion. Um, they don't necessarily figure heavily, uh, in other treatments. Um, but when they do appear, often the narrative is, is either sort of a, a racist comparison of, of evil, wicked Charlotte and, uh, loyal, dutiful Esther, or, they're treated as, you know, the sort of uh, forever female slave rebel and then a race, a race traitor. Um, and so what I try to do in this chapter is, is think through what these women's lives would have been like um, and, and what is involved in these split second choices that they're making. Um, and I argue that they're not spontaneous. They're, they're, they're decisions that are actually informed by, by quite a bit Um and they are very careful calculations. Charlotte's actions end, end up leading to her extra legal execution 
Um, as far as we know, Esther survives. Um, and so does Lavinia. She lives to have that baby. Um, and then she, uh, so she lives to have her child, um, and actually notes the rebellion in her family Bible record. Um, you know, it notes that the baby's born, you know, one month and so many days after the rebellion. Um, was Esther attending the birth? Did she help her? Um, what it, what were the lines for individual people, right? Was it one thing to kill enslavers, but another thing to murder someone who was eight months pregnant? Um, what relationship did Esther have to Lavinia? Um, we don't know. It's possible that they were even blood related. We don't know that. Um, uh, you know, so when we're talking about folks living closely together uh, or the ways that enslavers talked about enslaved people as being like family, I mean, sometimes they really did mean that these were members of their family. Um, so I think, you know, the reason I chose that passage is because it really speaks to the ways that we have to think a little bit differently about resistance if we're going to read Black women's participation. Um, and we can't discount them as sort of spontaneous. Uh, you know, no enslaved person took chances when it came to how they treated enslavers. They were very clear about the power dynamic. Um, and so looking at the, these women's choices is, is really important to, to understanding um, how Black women both experienced and survived this really catastrophic event. And yes, exactly. And, and so to me, that was, um, that passage for me helps better understand how to approach, you know, like we were talking about before offline about some of the work that I'm doing about how to, how do I approach the, the fullness and the community aspect and people that may seem to be, on the edge of rebellion, but in actuality, oftentimes that they were very central to how some people survived and were able to live past this. And, you know, um, and, and also to kind of think about how to read um, court documents, right? Literally like when I'm doing my dissertation proposal that uh, Dr. Dunbar is uh, going to be reading very soon. Um I'm literally in the historiographic section talking about how you read um, court documents to better understand the the notions of resistance that I'm seeing, the areas of resistance I'm I'm seeing in some of the um, some of the petitions that I'm that I'm looking at for the War of 1812. Um, and one of the other aspects that I found fascinating about your book, and this will go into our next question. Um, often when scholars debate what success looks like during slave rebellion, the Haitian Revolution often for, for folks uh, personifies the only major quote unquote win um, and or success. But surviving Southampton details that because the rebels killed, if I'm not mistaken, nearly 60 whites and even pushed Virginia's General Assembly to consider notions of emancipation, you know, the major premise of the text is not necessarily on the subject, but you made an important point early in the book that I do not want our listeners to either miss or not even know. So can you describe a bit more in detail about why we should consider uh, the rebellion a, a, a success in particular ways, um, especially in light of the 
newer characters in the rebellion our listeners are introduced to via surviving Southampton? Yeah, I think the question of success um, is difficult, and it 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 leads into some really like sort of binary uh, discussions of major historical events, right? That you know, if somehow you know the rebellion had managed to turn Virginia into Haiti, then, then that's success. Um, or if you look at the history of slave rebellions in Virginia, you know, that they actually made it to, to, to kill anybody. Um, that's, that's better than what Gabriel accomplished in 1800. Um, I guess, uh, so, you know, thinking about success, uh, is I think sort of a, can be kind of a mind trap, but I do think that it's important to acknowledge that the sort of multifaceted things that the rebellion accomplished, that on the one hand, uh, the Virginia legislature did debate slavery. Um, Spoiler, they do not abolish it. That's not what happens. Um, uh, (laughs) If anything, they, they, fall back on their old scapegoat, uh, free people of color, uh, and look for new ways to restrict, restrict their lives, um, and restrict their ability to stay, um, in the Commonwealth. Uh, but something that the rebellion did that was particularly terrifying and not a lot of sources produced by enslavers or willing to explicitly admit it is that this rebellion made perfectly clear that while sure, eventually the overarching power structures, the militia, the weapons, you know, eventually, right. Enslavers would prevail that that they were going to, you know, win quote unquote. Right. But you might still get got before, that happened because uh-huh. about almost 60 black, I mean, white men, women, and children, including an infant, um, and a whole schoolyard were, were dead, uh, before any of this could be put down. Um, and so that sense that, uh, that sort of every place-ness of Southampton County, that is this sort of out of the way, uh, not particularly well-known place um, full of mostly small to mid-sized landholders Um, that, that this, that this was possible, uh, that this was possible there. uh, That was part of what was so terrifying to enslavers, right? That, That this, that it really was possible for this to happen, that they weren't just, you know, sort of making up these fears um, or just imagining, you know, something out of the ordinary. I mean, the rebellion also happens. It happens in 1831. It happens at this moment in American history where democracy is expanding for free white men um, and contracting for just about everybody else. Um, It is the era of Indian removal. Um, it's very clear that the that the American dream in certain parts of the nation, it's Indian land and slaves to work it, um, forced migration, uh, it's changing communities, it's changing Virginia in really significant ways, um, and planter migration is changing Virginia 
in really important ways. Um, some of the old crops like tobacco that were really staples of the Commonwealth um, are playing out the land. Um, so it, it is this period of, of transition and, and a period where really the future of the institution um, and sort of the era of the revolution's promise that this was an institution that was going to die out, both enslaved people and enslavers were, were fully, had fully realized that that was not the case. Um, and so the question that this forces before leaders of the Commonwealth and their, their response to it um, ends up being incredibly telling uh, that, that no, these people very serious about slavery. They were serious about bolstering it in important ways. Um, and enslaved people knew it. They knew it. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, and just thinking about, you know, the rupture that, you know, and I go back to, um, uh, Harriet Jacobs, uh, narrative where she discusses like, you know, what's going on in, in, I guess I would believe Edenton, uh, North Carolina. So not too, too far away. And just thinking about, you know, the, the folks being round up, uh, and, and, you know, um, patrols and going into people's homes as, as, as free folks, um, uh, like her, her, her grandmother, for instance. And so just thinking about the ruptures, not only in the County, but it's broader connection. And then, you know, David Walker, you know, somehow, you know, ends up dying or, and, or say being killed not long, you know, or like in that general time frame. just, so just thinking about like, you know, 1831, um, in 1832, just generally, um, as uh, as big time changes, uh, when we think about like particular years and how particular years change eras or even create eras or inaugurate eras too. I mean, it's the age of Andrew Jackson, right? I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. it's an age where you know it's it's not just that manifest destiny is is you know is the philosophy of the planet. It is that, that in, you know, a broader coalition <laughs> of white male voters is, is really clearly making it known what they think is the most important. Um, and, and that is that it's their right, that it's, it's, you know, that it is their destiny to take all of it um, and to be in charge of everyone. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, the book doesn't do a lot with that broader context because that's not really the focus. Um, and I would say, you know, so Patrick Breen's book about the rebellion, uh, the world be delusion blood does a really good job of reading the court documents to, to think through the ways that white officials are really trying to suppress uh, the truth about this rebellion. Uh, they are trying to write, uh, right into existence, that it is small in scale, that it only involves a small number of people, and that it's really the ringleader who's the biggest problem. Um, I mean, there's a concerted effort to not dive into just how many people in the community of enslaved people uh, were involved. Um, and so, you know, I think that's also really important to know that some of the most prominent documents that we have to learn about this event 
or written by people who have a vested interest in suppressing how widespread uh, how widespread it was. And there are also instances in the documents uh, where white enslavers just do not believe black people who are trying to warn them. Um, and in one case, at least, uh, the white you know they they're being warned by an enslaved person, and the white people take away from the warning that the British are coming. Um, as kind of reminder of the War of 1812 or maybe the Revolutionary Era or maybe they've heard about Jamaica um, at that point. Uh, and so the enslaved person is kind of like, okay, fine, whatever, but you have to keep it moving. Like this, you know, so that this sort of, you know, willful rejection, like I, I can't quite look head on at the fact that it's enslaved people who are doing this, people I grew up with, people I know, um, you know, Th- that sort of willful rejection that that's what's really going on. I think that's also really important to the story. And it is actually also a great segue into the next question about um, a question about public history too, because, um, you know, hearing you speak about uh, the book and, and the different talks that you've given um, over the past couple months, you, you've spoken about your involvement in, and, and or connection to folks um, in Southampton on the ground. Um, and so I have a question that now that, you know, surviving Southampton is out into the world, uh, which got to say congratulations validly on that. That's this, this book is incredible. Uh, but will you continue being involved in the affairs of the county's public history um, uh, and really the contestations that are still, um, I, I believe, still going on uh, surrounding the rebellion? Um, so I'm not directly involved in any, like, explicitly county affairs. Those are all local, and um, I think local people, particularly people who have to continue living in Southampton County, that's their, that's their job, that's their area of expertise. Um, I am working with some historians from Christopher Newport, um, which is a university uh, in the Tidewater of Virginia. Um, they have an excellent public history program. Um, and we've worked on a couple of different projects to bring sort of public history interpretation to the county. Um, and uh, I've worked on the copy for a walking tour downtown. Um, I'll probably be there again in the spring to do some filming with one of Nat Turner's descendants uh, in the community um, in a documentary sense. Uh, but I honestly, uh, I think you know, it's important to highlight here that there is local public history that's happening um, from people in Southampton. The, their local agricultural museum has picked up and moved the Vaughn House, the site of the last murders of the rebellion, picked it up and moved it from its original location and have been spending um, a number of years uh, restoring, restoring the home. Um piece by piece. Uh, and so that is a local effort that I think is, is really significant. Um, the land that Turner was once enslaved on is, is, has been owned by his descendants for a few generations now. Um, and they put up their own marker near where Cabin Pond is in the county. Um, so there's also a lot of sort of vernacular curation. Um, and the county itself is still sort of out of the way. Uh, and I think that when it comes to deciding how to commemorate, how to preserve, you know, well, I'm happy to be happy to be involved as they 
get in touch that, and then I really do think it has to be community led and it has the parameters have to be led by people who actually live in Southampton. You know, a number of the descendants of people who were involved in this rebellion uh, still live in the county or at least own land there. Um, and their kids go to school together and they uh, live in community um, that can't, I mean, as in all communities can be fraught, can be, um, can be actually really pleasant. It just depends. Um, and so ultimately, you know, as folks are interested, I'm happy to be involved, but I also think there's some really excellent locally, locally run and locally administrated projects that are really, really significant um, and super important. Definitely. And, and yeah, actually you had mentioned that house. I was, that's, near um the center of town when uh adam thomas and i visited uh together and um it's like the marker it's like a couple lines i think one of them uh spoke to like one of the i think to to your point about one of the last homes where uh, uh some of the rebels came um and so one of the aspects too going back to even that experience where uh the question of mapping played in a impactful um, piece in the construction of the book in, in terms of like some of the maps and how you construct and, and, and locate, as you say, your reader um, in place. And so you had mentioned maps before. So to ask a specific question about them, um, how did maps ultimately play um, a role in how you reconstructed a fuller and more communal, I guess, account of Nat Turner's rebellion. Um, so, you know, first I have to uh, to say that uh, Tony Kay's work really uh, really helped me think through the neighborhood aspect of this rebellion. Um, and I worked with a map maker as I was working on the book uh, to produce a series of maps based on historical maps, based on maps that other historians had made for their for their, for their work um, to think about space and place. Um, and then I've spent time in the county uh, to get a feel for uh, the county itself uh, and moving in space and time. And um, one of my advisors, Suzanne Lopsock, uh, early on in the project talked to me about maps and, and the ways that they can create an artificial sense, you know, floating over a space. Um, and so to kind of think more expansively about mapping and moving through space. Um, so one of many decisions I made around mapping um, is the inclusion of geographic features in maps. I have a map on page 58 of the book that maps out the rebellion route um, and includes his, the roads that are historical to the county. So you can see the ways that, that rebels are avoiding the roads, um, but also includes local uh, swamps and smaller swamps um, that really speak to, you know, well, what are the geographic features that they're trying to move around? Um, and, and what I think is helpful about that uh, is it really gives a sense of just how well they knew the area um, and just how well they knew how to not be on the road. <laughs> um, uh, and I think that that's, that's really important. Um, I also did some, some work uh, looking at what other disciplines have to say about the ways that farms were laid out in Virginia. 
so I could get a, a sense of farmyards um, and where kitchens were in relation to houses, um, how kitchens often function both as a living space uh, for enslaved people and as a workspace, um, and really tried to think about which spaces in that broader outline of a typical farm are women in throughout the workday versus men, where are children, um, where are enslavers throughout the workday. Um, so also thinking about kind of human geography and demography, looking at, well, well, what is this population of enslaved people? You know, there are a number of farms where people own more than 25 enslaved people, but over half of those people are under the age of 10. Um, uh, so that really changes your perspective on what that particular holding really looks like. It turns out a lot of the labor is in supervising and rearing children um, and teaching them how to do the work you need them to do. Um, so I do think about geography in maps um, in those really real physical senses. Um, and then I also borrow from other historians and other scholars, geographers, um, and talking about different sort of layers of geography. Um, so Catherine McKittrick's work in geography and uh, Stephanie Camp's really foundational work, thinking about the ways that um, enslaved people of different generations, different ages, look at physical geography differently than uh, enslavers. So one example I like to use is that at a certain point in time, Nat Turner hid out in a wood pile uh, on the Francis place. And the wood pile is a site of labor, um, but it's also a site right where he secluded himself. And so the different, the different viewpoints of the same physical location, physical marker on the map, the wood pile, um, right, really helps illustrate the layers of geography I'm talking about, right? So it's both a site of, of restriction and containment at the same time that it's envisioned by an enslaved person as a place of refuge. Not for long, but briefly as a place of refuge. And speaking to the point about space and, and, and who makes up space too, um, we've throughout Surviving Southampton are references to various indigenous groups from the region, like like the Nottaway. Um, so did indigenous people intersect at all with the rebellion's actors and actresses? And did authorities ever think Nat Turner and his fellow rebels took refuge with indigenous peoples at all? Um, so you don't have any, any evidence that authorities were necessarily worried about that. They're, they're more worried about the Great Dismal Swamp that is close, close-ish by. Right. Um, so uh, there had long been and still are indigenous people who live in Southampton County um, and in the surrounding area. Um, some go by the name Nottaway, um, and that is a state, I believe, state-recognized tribal affiliation. Some use the term Sharanahaka Nottaway, um, and so I just, I will leave it up to them to decide uh, individually how they prefer to be referred to. Um, there was a section, a plot of land uh, on the south bank of the Nottaway River that bisects the county that was simply recognized as Indian land and the overseers of the poor administered it um, and a number of people had land uh, land holdings within the bounds. Um, 
Something important to note is that in Virginia at the time, the term free person of color included both people of African descent and indigenous people. Um, So in the free person of color registries for the county, there are a number of people who list their residents as Indian land. Um, Now, some of these registries also include physical descriptions of people. Um, So it, which of course can get kind of sticky and trying to figure out well, who who's living on in this particular area is indigenous versus of um, African descent. Um, and I don't really get into that too much in the book. Um, but I do talk about the fact that, that there is a population of free people of color, um, some of whom are, are of African descent um, who are also living on Indian land. Um, already. So they themselves may be indigenous. They may have an indigenous spouse. Um, That's not 100% clear from some of the records, Um, but their proximity and connection to the Black community, you know, it's not hard to imagine that that there's interaction there. Um, Though I don't necessarily have any hard evidence um, about beyond the, the people who are listed as free people of color um, as necessarily participating. Um, but I wanted to make sure that their presence was accounted for. Um, I'm not a, a specialist in Indigenous history. Um, and so it's I don't think that it's up to me or this book to tell the full story of the Indigenous people who lived in the county. Um, but I do think it's an important point of acknowledgement. Um, and I do think that especially given their place in the geography of the county, um, it's important to to recognize their presence, even if I don't have a lot of a, a lot of evidence um, either way about participation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you know, and driving around um, Virginia, you know, you'll see, you know, especially on, you know, um, non um on pretty much I-95 or, you know, the main highways that you'll see, you know, uh, reservations and such peppered through. And so just to make folks remember, indigenous people are, they're still here, right? You know, they haven't gone anywhere. Um, And so, you know, as we push towards the end of the interview here, um, I did have a question about, um, and and you answered this in a way earlier, but as things are, you know, the toughness of the writing and the teaching of this particular history, um, if you don't mind, can you tell us what what activities and what other things really help refuel your tank and help refresh your spirit, um, especially when the going gets tough? Um, the, the journey towards learning to say no, you know, is a constant journey uh, for all of us in academia. Amen. Um, and I think I get better at it. Uh, the longer I'm in the game. Um, but I also create space uh, for myself and space for other things and other people who bring me joy um, and uh, sort of refuse to give every single piece of my time. Um, and I, I, I encourage, you know, students that I have to think about what those things are for them too. Uh, and for some people it's, it's physical activity. Um, I, I like to work out, so 
you know, I make sure that I get my gym time in. Um, I like music. Um, and so when in non COVID times, I sing with a local choir and then in COVID times, I picked up my guitar again, um, anything to kind of activate some other area of my brain, um, do something that's, that's a healthy, a healthy way to, to take a break and relax. Um, and then to make space for time and relationships, um, and friendship and, um, relaxation and reading things that are not in my own field or my own area of interest, um, blocking off time to take trips when the pandemic allows, uh, um, and say no, you know, one of the best things that I ever did was, was take my work email off of my phone, um, and then refuse to look at my work email after five o'clock on Friday. Um, I look at it once on Sunday evenings and then come back to it on Monday morning. Um, there, as far as I know, um, there only been one or two true history emergencies, um, that needed immediate history attention, uh, (laughs) that happened on a Saturday or a Sunday. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, yeah, there's no such thing as, you know, some sort of history emergency. I'm not that kind of doctor. Right. So, uh, it's okay, uh, to, just refuse to just say no. And I will say the mentors in my life, the people who give me good models of what it is to survive uh, in this profession and in this game uh, are people who have very clear boundaries around their space and their engagement and their time. Um, And then very clear ideas of uh, their own professional mission, you know, what their work is, what their versus what their job is and how much space and time each of those things gets in their life. Um, It's easier said than done. It's more of a process than it is, you know, a hard and fast set of rules. But um, yeah, I, I find ways to give time and energy to the things that, that bring me joy. So how, you know, we obviously went, you you uh, graduated from the same program I'm in. So like where, you know, might've even been before you ever got to records, but when did you start to build the the scaffolding for you to know this time of day, I'm doing this, this time of day, I'm doing that. And I know our experiences change as, as, as our lives change, right. With relationships and families, but can you help, especially for us, younger scholars that are trying to build that know, you know, gene better um, about your own process through how you've gotten to where you are now with building those boundaries. But uh, Lord knows I, I got, I got, I'm, I'm asking for a largely even from a, from a damn self. So, you know. Um, so some of it is about knowing yourself better um, and dealing with uh, whatever coping mechanisms you've learned, uh, over the years, sometimes healthy, sometimes unhealthy. Um, I recommend some form of therapy for just about everybody. Uh, even if it's just a quick tune up or a quick, you know, dip in to see, uh, you know, what, what you might need to work on. Um, but working with a licensed therapist to, to really get, um, to really get your emotional health in order, uh, is, honestly, the first step towards being able to set boundaries and be okay with them. Um, I also think, 
you know, uh, the other, you know, big thing that's super important to do is to know when you actually are the most effective at getting work done. I am not effective before about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I know that. Um, and so knowing that there are other things that I can do before <laughs> we're about 10 o'clock. Um, uh, and then, you know, just kind of knowing what are the, what are the times of day that work best for you and treating those times of day as if they're meetings, they're not free time. That's, that is time where you are working. Um, the other thing that sometimes can be helpful getting into the semester is that teaching and teaching schedules offer brackets of, of time. Um, and initially when you're doing your initial preps, teaching can kind of take over. Uh, but I find myself at the start of each semester forcing myself to not add a bunch of new things, uh, but to find ways, right. To, to really, give what I've budgeted for each class its full attention, uh, and then keep it moving. Um, like I said, a lot of our training is about working independently. Um, and sometimes for some people, you know, that's great. They thrive on that. Um, for others, uh, it is really hard to, to be that isolated, um, all the time. Yeah. Um, so for me, you know, I worked out a schedule when I was writing my dissertation, um, where I did certain kind of like rote research tasks, like processing metadata and labeling early, you know, earlier in the morning, in the afternoon, I did writing sprints and then I shut it down at five o'clock and went to the gym. Um, and I got way more done than I would have if I kind of tried to force myself to sit and do the writing things first thing in the morning. Um, so that's the other thing. A lot of our work is about putting one foot in front of the other, it's not really about, right? You, you often are not going to feel super accomplished by the end of the day. Um, we don't have that kind of work. Um, uh-huh. And uh, it's, you know, living with the marathon of it all that can be really tough. Um, so, you know, those are my, those are my suggestions uh, is building out something that actually works um, for you. Um, and then not get, it's easy with social media, especially, but it's easy in community with other students, uh, to get caught up in the kind of, uh, never not working, uh, uh-huh. always, always busy, uh, performatively being stressed out. Um, Say that. it's not, it's not a cute way to live. Uh, you know, we've got enough certainly as black people, but enough, uh, in this world to stress us out. Uh, so letting go of feeling like you have to perform that is also, mm-hmm. you know, that's also huge. Yeah, no, for real. And, you know, I, I'm definitely, you know, I, I've, over the years I've gotten, I think better, um, at, at really just finding things that I enjoy. Um, you know, I've always had things I enjoyed, of course, but just like, building out time to just enjoy it so like today's wednesday we're recording this wednesday september 15th so at 8 p.m every wednesday i am sitting in front of my my television and watching married at first sight that is my thing i i love it it is i i, I love the um 
I love the shows going all the way back to Flavor of Love, you know, what, almost 20 years ago. Um, and it's just, just, just drama and just, just ridiculousness. But just saying that, like, it's, it's something else where I'm like, it's what I do. Like reality television is like my thing outside of work and like working out and like doing all that stuff. Because as you said, trying to find something that you like enjoy, but also that you build out that time that this is that time. Um, and the earlier, the better. And I, and I'm, and I'm glad you talked about the scheduling thing too, in terms of like closing up shop at five, because Lord knows I need to, I, yeah, not working into the night. It's something I need to start working on too. Um, it's late night eating. It's not always the best. Um, and so um, as we wrap up here, fun question here. Returning to writing for a moment before we close up shop, I love asking my favorite historians and writers about their own workspace. And Lord knows you are one of my favorite historians, of course. Um, if you had all the money you needed to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, what would it look like? What would it smell like? What art would you get? And what is playing in the background as well? Paint the picture for the people, Professor Holden. Yeah, I mean, if I had all the money in the world and a teleportation device, I could beam to my writing space and beam back. And it'd be somewhere on the north coast of California, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Um, and up there, it smells like um, really large redwood trees, uh, and the ocean, um, and it sounds like the ocean. Um, occasionally I will probably put on my little, uh, coffee activity program on my computer that pipes in pretend coffee shop noises. Um, but that's it. That's where I would go. Um, and just sit with the ocean, um, and work. Amen. That That's, that's beautiful. And so actually, in terms of, of, of what things are there, um, I do have one last question. I noticed I didn't put on in here, but it's very important. The cover. The cover. Mm-hmm. Very important. Can you tell us about the artist and how you came across the artist that ultimately helped to bring this amazing, amazing just one of the, my favorite covers of all time to, to, to life. Sure. So Stephen Towns is a, a Baltimore-based artist who is a visual artist. Um, I was in Baltimore for a symposium on Black marriage and uh, went up uh, went up to the Baltimore Museum of Art to look at the series of story quilts that Stephen Towns produced. He taught himself to quilt. And he did a whole series of story quilts about the Southampton Rebellion. Really gorgeous. Um, if you go to Stephen Towns' website, uh, stephentowns.com, you will see, you can see the quilts there. Um, and thought it was great, you know, got the little, you know, fold out thing for the exhibit and came back and then did a panel that night. Um, and at the panel discussion, there was this man in the front row who was taking a lot of notes and looked really, really interested. Um, and afterwards he came up to me and said, you know, Oh, your work sounds so interesting. You know, I just did some artwork about Nat Turner's rebellion. Um, and I said, Oh, are you Stephen Towns? Um, and he was, so I actually met the artist, uh, in this 
very chicken soup for the historian's soul sort of way. Um, Stephen is, is a really lovely person. Um, and, uh, his work, his work both plays with sort of high Renaissance religious iconography and the motifs and trappings of, of that particular moment, um, in art history, uh, while also really dealing with the sort of, I feel like the, the, the tactile, um, Sort of the tactile when it comes to representing uh, what artists can do that historians don't admit to doing, which is uh, imagining. And so I said to him, you know, your quilts are really gorgeous. I'd love to use one for the cover of my book. And so he gave me his card and said, well, get in touch to me with me when you get to that point. Um, and so I originally thought I was going to use this quilt, uh, one of the quilts uh, for the cover um, and the the press got in touch with Stephen and, and worked out um, permissions and, and he graciously for, for a small honorarium agreed to allow us to use uh, his work and their design people got going. And honestly, the, the cover of the book does not really do the gorgeous richness of the quilt much justice. Uh, and so the, the designers also looked at the rest of his artwork that he has on his website um, and found the painting that ended up being used for the cover of the book. Um, the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hands of God. Um, and this comes from a series of paintings he did called the Black Magic series. And in it, he's imagining the relationship between Nat Turner and his wife, Cherry Turner. Um, and Cherry Turner is a historical person who we basically know existed. We sort of have an idea of where she was enslaved, but but that's... Most of what do we know about her, her descendants do have some remembrance of her, of her that, that are um, sort of scattered in, in, in some early journal Negro history articles. Um, but he really does the work of imagining uh, the two of them and their, and their marriage. Uh, and the image that ultimately I decided to go with that he graciously said was okay, actually in includes community in the background, but in the foreground, um, really portrays Cherry like, like a religious icon. Um, and there are things that this piece of artwork does that I can't, I can't really do as a historian because our method doesn't allow for it. Um, but it's such a striking, um, image that really draws, draws the viewer's eye, um, honestly, to her, to her halo, um, and to the sort of symbolism of, of what she's holding in her arms and, uh, a baby and then also broken chains, um, that I, I thought I saw it and I immediately fell in love with it. Um, so that's the story of the cover. It's actually, it's, I think it's a pretty interesting story and I think it ultimately was meant to be. You know, for real. And like, it, it's just so cool to kind of think about, you're going to this, you know, uh, the panel and, and presentation to Baltimore and look what else happens afterwards that um, we get to see the amazingness um, as well. And so I'm just so, so happy that, you know, this this happened and, and we definitely uh, want folks to go and su support uh, Stephen as well. Um, and so in the final question here, you know, because he, especially because you talked about music before. Um, before we head out here, Dr. Holden, uh, 
because I rarely work too long without music playing in the background, I wondered if you could curate a surviving Southampton playlist for the people, what five to eight songs would go in said playlist? Um, so when you sent me this question, I took it seriously. So I did curate a playlist and you all can find it um, on Spotify at hashtag surviving Southampton, um, all one word. Um, but it's a mix of sort of roots music and uh, more contemporary treatments of uh, the rebellion. Um, so I start out with the folk song, Sylvie. It's a work song. Uh, Sweet Honey and the Rock does a version of it. Um, and it's, it's basically a, a field song asking for water. Um, and so much of this book is about labor. Uh, and so much of this book is about the role that children play um, in that labor. Uh, so that came to mind immediately. Uh, the second is a tune by the Carolina Chocolate Drops, uh, Ruby, Are You Mad at Your Man? Um, it's actually in the voice of a, the male, a male singer asking uh, his female companion, are you mad at me, over and over again. Um, and I think it kind of spe- speaks to the rage and grief. Um, it's not a song from the 1830s, but it is a song that reflects the tension um, uh, between women and men. Uh, during this rebellion. Um, Rhiannon Giddens, who's a, the banjo player in the Carolina Chocolate mm. Drops, and she's fairly famous uh, now as a, as a banjo player and songwriter and musician, um, is part of a group um, called Our Native Daughters of Black Women Who Play String Band Music and Roots Music. Um, and they sing uh, Polly Ann's Hammer, and it's a ballad about John Henry's wife. And at the end of the ballad of John Henry, John Henry dies and Polly picks up his hammer and continues the job. Um, And so again, it's not about the era of Atlantic slavery at all, but it is about the labor of men and women um, and intimate relationship. Um, I love Valerie June um, and her working woman blues. um, I think really captures a type of feeling of women's endurance um, and survival. Um, Bernice Johnson Regan, so the founder of Sweet Honey and the Rock, uh, does a version of the song Hallelujah, which speaks to a cosmology and more of a cosmological look um, of endurance and survival because it's about grief, but it's also about a reassurance of seeing people again, um, even after they're gone. Um, and then to move out of the sort of slow singing and flower bringing uh, portion of the playlist, uh, I, uh, so there is this uh, band, uh, Nat Turner Rebellion, uh, that was that recorded in the, I think the late 60s and 70s in Philadelphia, and their album wasn't released in the era. It didn't get released until the early 2000s. Um, a whole piece about them on NPR if you're interested in them but their yeah. album is up on Spotify. Um, and they do have a, a song called Tribute to a Slave. And it, it's sort of about Nat Turner, but sort of not. Um, and uh, I like it uh, because it speaks to the kind of tradition of thinking of Nat Turner as this folk hero and black superhero at the same time that like the details aren't all correct there. So it also speaks to the ways that, you know, playing telephone with history means that some things get, switched up um but one thing that's happened throughout this project is that 
uh, I found and encountered Nat Turner in very in kind of random places. I have a children's comic book about Nat Turner. Uh, Nat Turner's there. Nat Turner, you know, there's a Nat Turner for every generation of activists. Um, so um, I, I kind of thought that that their work, um, again, this work that was also hidden for decades and then was finally released uh, in I think like 2007, um, uh, also speaks to the to the kinds of ways that sometimes the people that we're looking for are also hidden over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artist Black Milk uh, worked with a, another band, I think in Philadelphia. This band is also called Matt Turner. Um, and one of the tunes on their album, uh, together, um, and the album's title is, uh, the rebellion sessions. Um, mm. they had the first track, uh, with black milk and Nat Turner and it's called the ancient rebellion. Uh, and it's instrumental, but it, I think it kind of speaks to the, in that way, that sort of fusion can uh speaks to the kind of disjointed way that memory works and time works um and then finally uh wrap up the playlist with Jamila Woods uh Black Girl Soldier that kind of speaks to this kind of ancestry of of female freedom fighters um and the present in really important ways uh and is uh you know its own sort of memorial um and, and way of remembering um, our female freedom fighter ancestors. So yeah, check out the playlist. It's like, I think it's called like it's a hashtag surviving Southampton. Oh man, see you're see. I love that you're not the first person I've asked this to, but you were the first person who has taken the initiative to actually create a playlist for they for they join. So once again, are you hashtag are you mafia is changing the game setting the stage hey i, mean, I love it. you know if there's one thing uh if there's one thing you learn from this book it's that if you stay ready you don't have to get ready so you know you got to be ready if the people if the people want playlists then you got to have it ready to go hashtag stay ready all stars okay <laughs> okay and we already know dr vanessa holden is in the hall of fame that's what the r stands for and are you actually it's, yes. it's ready <laughs> Yes. Yes. I thought you did that. I thought. Look, 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 look. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, So, Dr. Holden, I really appreciate you for taking the time. You know, we've been talking for a while to get this together, and I'm glad that we came together at this particular time, too. Um, And y'all, please go follow Dr. Vanessa Holden on Twitter. She's doing, at this present moment, an amazing uh, day-by-day, pretty much day-by-day account of the lead up to um, the eventual uh, uh, spoiler alert uh, capture of uh, of Nat Turner, but the great thing is that Doctor Holden's um, thread is making you literally think that every day he's living past the you know the particular days that the rebellion supposedly occurred, but it just goes to show that he didn't survive as long as he did without other people helping him. And as Dr. Holden's book shows, many of those were um, enslaved women and, and free women uh, or enslaved women in, in the in the county. Um, and y'all, please go get this book. 
University of Illinois Press, and will also uh, join, because this is also happening during Asala, a, um, a code for, uh, from, from the press as well, so that when you listen to this episode, we can direct you to the University of Illinois Press to be able to get the um, to get the book with that discount code. Because, you know, we, we love our discount codes out here. We're always trying to get people to buy the books, and they will from this one. So um, we, we'll attach that to the show notes. So, y'all, I'm your host from New Books in African American Studies, Adam McNeil. And um, if you like this episode and more, Please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And also, speaking of things to go look out, check out the schedule for hashtag Slavery Archive, which happens uh, on many Wednesdays throughout um, throughout the academic calendar and the academic year, um, and also into the summertime as well. So if you want to know some of the best works in, in slavery scholarship, hashtag Slavery Archive got y'all covered. And they also have a backlog of amazing other interviews from Vincent Brown back in the summer of 2020, all the way to today. Dr. Holden? Yeah, check us out on YouTube. Um, we keep them up on our YouTube page for Slavery Archive. So just search Slavery Archive and our YouTube page comes up. They're great to assign. They're great to, to get an idea of what books are about. Um, and you can always join us by uh, going to our website, um, Slavery Archive. Um, and you can, yeah, you can register. So. Um, and we'll include the information for this uh, along with the podcast. Um, but to get 50, yes, that's right, 50% off um, of Surviving Southampton, um, you just need to go to the University of Illinois Press website, put the book in your cart, and then use the code ASALA21, A-S-A-L-H-21, um, and you'll go ahead and get that discount. So get the book if you don't already have it. And we'll make sure that that's available with the episode. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. This was really lovely. Outstanding. And so, y'all, as I always say at the end of our our time here on the New Books in African American Studies, until next time, y'all, over and out.